It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I want to start this episode today with our guest, Andrea Hansen. By admitting something to you, Andrea, and also to Whitney, that I feel a little bit of shame in admitting this. Because I don't think that I've necessarily understood fully or forgiven myself for doing this. I recently have been observing in myself that through a lot of the demands of work and clients and pressure and feeling like I am really stuck kind of in a survival mode right now, which we're recording this episode in near the end of August in 2021. And I've talked to a lot of people who feel like they're kind of frayed at both ends, that they're in survival mode, that they feel constantly stressed, confused, uncertain about the future. There's there's a lot of commonalities, I think, in the emotional experience happening with a lot of humans on this planet. That being said, I have been losing my temper a lot. And I've been doing some things lately when I lose my temper that I'm not proud of, uh, like destroying things in the house. <laughs> As I'm saying this, I, I already start to feel like a little bit of tightness in my chest and my stomach, like even saying this out loud, because there's a fear that in admitting this, people are going to go, oh, but Jason's this positive guy. And we have this idea of who Jason is. And Jason has this idea of who Jason is. And if I'm losing my temper and I'm literally like destroying objects around the house, I'm not physically hurting myself or anyone else. It's just lately, over the past few months, I've observed myself destroying physical objects. It's it's really weird. I don't necessarily have a track record of this or a history of it, but the past three months, I have picked up things in the house when I've lost my temper and destroyed them and went, oh, well, I hope I didn't need that thing because now it's totally shattered or broken. The reason I'm bringing this up, Andrea, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today is I was researching a lot of the wonderful content, your podcast, your blog, and I came across some of your work talking about adult temper tantrums. And I thought the timing of my discovery of that, it's so perfect, right? Sometimes in life, we find things and we didn't know we needed to read them. And I was reading your blog post called The Storm Before the Calm, uh, Clarity Through Adult Temper Tantrums, and I'm reading it. And I'm starting to feel a little bit of lightness as I'm reading it because I've been judging myself and being so angry at myself for breaking things in the house when I lose my temper. So I want to start that today with you, Andrea, here on the podcast of, of talking about maybe looking at the positive benefits of an adult temper tantrum and how if I'm in a situation like I'm in right now where I'm beating myself up for losing my temper, how I can understand what the benefit of these are and how to forgive myself when I do have these temper tantrums. So thanks for being here, Andrea. Tell us about adult temper tantrums because I really need some help with this. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I was just telling you before we started the show how much I truly do love this podcast because I love as you have, you know, it's a perfect example right here. It's such an authentic, down to earth, let's just you know, take a good look, an honest look at what's going on and not even for the purpose of fixing, 
things because I actually, it's funny, like I am a life coach. I am a mindset coach, but I don't think anybody needs to be fixed. I don't think there's anything wrong with any of us. I think it's just a matter of taking a look and seeing what you want to change or what you want to do differently, right? In growth. And I love, I love adult time for tantrums. I... (laughs) I think they're amazing. I have been doing them for a while. Uh, kind of before I realized to like describe them or to use them as a tool, I just realized like, hey, this is something that I've done. And like you, the first couple of times I was like, oh, was that okay? Was that, you know, did I just totally lose it? Did I just go, you know, have a total meltdown? And if I did, is that okay? And And there's all of these questions and all of these judgments because you're right. It's like, we feel like we should have things together. And if we look at ourselves as a, I look at myself as a generally positive person, but I have, you know, an inner critic that's not so. And, you know, and so it's not, nobody's a hundred percent positive, you know, generally it's going to be a 50, 50, the way I see it. And where I think these adult temper tantrums come into play is How are you allowing what the quote unquote negative emotions, right? Because a lot of times when we have these emotions, you you know, whatever it is, like for example, for me, if I look at one of my first temper tantrums, it was like epic, ugly cry, crazy, so glad that nobody was there to witness. (laughs) Like, I don't think I would have fully had one if I had witnesses there because if I was, you know, you just have to let yourself go. But I had so much fear and so much shame and so much just unknowing around my diagnosis. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, uh, and this is 21 years ago, almost 22 years ago. And I, you know, to kind of what you said, on the one hand, I was very positive about this from the get go. I was like, this is not going to define me. I'm not, you know, I rejected a lot of what doctors said because I was like, you don't even know me. Like, how are you even saying these things? But then I also had this, you know, pretty thick layer underneath of just terror and fear and shame because I was afraid, you know, what's the future going to look like? Even though I was kind of rebelling against what these doctors told me in the back of my mind, I was like, but what if they're right? You know, like outwardly, I was like, you don't know me. Like, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen to me. Nobody does. But then I, you know, when I was quiet with my own mind, sometimes at three o'clock in the morning, it would be like, what if this is happening? What if this is going to happen? And I had a tremendous amount of these negative emotions. And you're right. It's easy to push against it because generally I'm a positive person. Other people would call me a positive person right? Other people were calling me, you know, oh, you're doing so well with this and you're such an example, you know, and you have almost this public persona that is somehow shaping your own identity, even though we know like it's not, that's not necessarily how, how our own identity should be shaped (laughs) through what other people see us as, but it does. And so when I had this, you know, temper tantrum, what happened was a complete, the best way I can describe it is a surrender. 
So it's 100%, you know, I see there's kind of two sides to energy, right? There's resistance and then there's allowing. And a lot of times when we have these negative emotions, it's, oh, but that's not me. Other people see me as such so positive. I shouldn't be thinking this. What if I do entertain this? What if I make it happen? Like what if somehow it's this self-fulfilling prophecy? So it's like, we don't even want to entertain these negative thoughts that are causing, you know, all of this negative emotion to bubble up. And because we don't do this, they just kind of repeat on our head. It's like ticker tape, you know, like in finance, like if you see like the ticker tape of all the stocks, it's like, that's what thoughts are like in our head if we don't address them. And so you have these negative thoughts, they're causing all these negative emotions. You're getting upset because you're having these thoughts that causes negative, you know, more negative emotion. And at the same time, you're almost not letting yourself look at it because it's like the boogeyman in the closet. It's like, just don't look at it because it'll become real. It'll happen. And so I had all of these thoughts about what happens if I do, you know, wake up paralyzed, which by the way, is kind of not something that happens, but what I was receiving when I was first diagnosed before I did a lot of, you know, before I lived with it, before I did a lot of research, when it was just kind of slapped in, you know, in my lap, I was like, holy cow, this can happen. And so I was so desperately afraid and I can't, it was almost like just coming to this precipice where it's like, I cannot take this anymore. Right. Often that's when, yeah, you pick up your keyboard, you pick up your cell phone, (laughs) whatever it is. And you just like, because that's a release. Right. And there's, you know, when we do things, especially when we make, when we take motions like that, sometimes people just go for a run. Some people, you know, sometimes they'll go and just, you know, do crazy weightlifting or something like that. But that movement is so closely tied to that emotional center that can give us some release. But for a temper tantrum, truly releasing means releasing that emotion and getting to the core. To do that, it's the best way I can describe it is just kind of just laying your soul bare of like, you know what, let's just, you know, it's okay if this happens. It's not in like a, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do. It's not that. It's a much more loving acceptance of the fact that I had these thoughts and I felt this way and that I was just scared. And it was allowing myself instead of being in that that space of saying like, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to entertain it. I'm so afraid that it's just, you know, it's never going to stop. I'm going to start crying and I'm never going to stop crying. I just allowed myself to just, you know, just open that door and just look at everything, turn the light on, allow it all to allow myself to feel it all, allow myself to acknowledge all of what I was thinking, what I was afraid of. And it can look like a lot of things. In that moment, it was a really long, just visceral reaction. It was just an ugly cry for a while. And I don't mean a while, like it was days, like it was like, you know, like a 15 minute situation, because when you truly, I don't know if you guys have read Jill Bolte Taylor, who talks, I love a stroke of insight, I want to say, but she talks about truly releasing emotion. And when you're truly releasing your emotion, it doesn't take that long. What happens when we feel like emotions just keep going, it's because it hasn't, we haven't really fully released it. 
it's because we're resisting it in some way, or we're still kind of resisting that thought. We're still perpetuating the thought that's making us feel really bad. Or if there's an emotion in our body, we're not fully allowing ourselves. Because if you just fully allow yourself to have that emotion without fear, without any kind of worry about how long it's going to last, without any kind of judgment about why it's there, if you just let yourself feel that it's, that is the ultimate release. And I call it a temper tantrum because that's kind of what it feels like in your head, because your head is just like, you know, if you think, I don't know, it's like, it's like animal from the, from the Muppets, you know, your head's just like, blah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's kind of what it is. But the thing is, because it is such an honest and open and allowing look at what your, you know, what ideas you're afraid of and feeling that emotion, that is the release. And that's why on the other hand, or on the other side of it, you get such clarity because it's all of those, like when you're, when your brain is in this state of negativity, and I'm not saying it, you know, you're negative all the time and you can't, it's just when there's enough of it there that it's just like this underlying, you know, kind of layer, your brain doesn't have full access. Your brain is kind of in that fight or flight mode, right? Or freeze or fawn. And you don't have full access to creativity. You don't have full access to problem solving because when you're in fight or flight, you don't need it, right? We don't need creativity when we're running from a bear, right? We don't need to like sit and be like, what would MacGyver do? If I, you know, we don't need it. We need just snap decisions. And so, you know, when you put that into our just everyday lives, when we're not running from a bear, we're still activating our brain on a little bit of that fight or flight, which means we don't have that full clarity. We don't have that solution. So we're still kind of in that tunnel vision of, you know, what happens when your brain is in fight or flight. So that's why I say, once you kind of go through this release you are kicked out of that fight or flight. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's not just, uh, you know, one of two choices. I actually have 10 choices here. You know, all of a sudden this yes or no becomes a very nuanced answer. And that's where all that clarity comes from because you've literally just like swept all of what's holding you back. It's like one clean sweep out of your brain. So that is in a nutshell, the anatomy of the uh, adult temper tantrum, but I love it. I love them. <laughs> so Andrea, I think the thing that comes up for me with listening to you describe the process of the adult temper tantrum is I'm curious if people get stuck, if you've observed with your clients, yourself, people you work with, where people get stuck on this. Because for me, in my experience, it's almost been, I don't know if permission is the right word, but but giving myself a feeling of safety and permission and space to have these kind of experiences. Because I think as a child, if I look back to holding myself back from certain emotional experiences, I think it was because when I did have tantrums as a child, I observed how uncomfortable it made people and how it felt like a burden when I would have emotional outbursts, because I've always been an extremely sensitive 
extremely empathic human being ever since I was a very, very tiny child, feeling a lot of things, intense emotions all of the time. And I started to observe that people would just not react well when I would display some of those emotions. So as an adult, I've had to learn how to trust that I can give myself a feeling of safety to express those things and try and find a way not to judge it and allow it. And I'm wondering in your experience with your life with these tantrums, again, and the people you work with, like, what's that interconnection? What have you noticed between acceptance, permission, and safety around these temper tantrums? Because I still struggle to give myself permission to do this. I do. It's hard. It's hard to let myself have that kind of release. Yeah. I mean, to be completely clear, these are tantrums that are, number one, don't need to have any witnesses, right? You don't need to do these in front of anybody. There's no reason to. This is, it's almost like once you include somebody else, then it's no longer about you. It's about them. And kind of one of the keys about the temper tantrum is that it's all about you. And that's one of the things that make it so, I think, so loving is because you are holding your own attention. It's not about, well, she made me do it or she, you know, blew up whatever was going on and that's why I'm so angry or they did something or it's this circumstance, right? I, when I was having my temper tantrum, I wasn't even talking about, talking about in my head, but I wasn't even saying like, it's the MS that's doing this. I wasn't bringing any of that in there. It was all about me. And so it wasn't about, you know, what is somebody else going to think? Because that's deflecting away from you. Right. So that's the first thing is that, you know, it's, it's a very loving holding of attention on yourself and on what's going on. And it does take a certain amount of self-trust to be able to do this a hundred percent, because a lot of times the reason why we don't do things is not necessarily because we're afraid of what other people are going to say or what other people are going to do, but we're afraid of what we're going to tell ourselves. We're afraid of our own inner critic because, you know, nothing is meaner to us generally than what we say to ourselves. And so a lot of times we are at that point where we're afraid of how we're going to judge ourselves and what we're going to tell ourselves because it can be really, really mean. So yes, when I am working with clients, you know, we don't just go into this. <laughs> it's not like session one, great, let's have a tantrum. Mm -mm. There's got to be a certain amount of work done with their own judgment, with how they talk to themselves. When you, when you do that work on your, your inner critic or whatever, you know, people call it a different things. People call it the negative voice in their head. People call it the critical voice in their head. I call it my inner mean girl because that's always <laughs> that's always really aligned with me. But when you do that work, it starts to build back up that self-trust. And it starts to build back up what you referred to earlier as that kind of observer state where you are noticing like, oh yeah, I'm saying this to myself. Instead of totally just taking in the message and believing it and, you know, crumbling underneath it. So there does need to be a certain amount. And so I would say, if this is something that you want to do, I would say, take a honest look at how much you trust yourself to go through it. 
right? And it's not like you have to fully trust and accept and love yourself unconditionally before you can do this. That is not at all what it is. But it's trusting yourself in that moment that you can handle it, right? That you're not going to... So for me, when I was doing it, you know, when I first did it with my EMS, I, you know, I wasn't a life coach. I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't even really know... What's weird is I didn't even really know what my emotions were. I just needed this on such a visceral level. I just kind of did it because I was at just wit's end. I was like, I don't know what else to do. I have to just totally, you know, open up and, and give myself over to this. But you have to, you know, trust that you can, you know, go through this and come out on the other end. You have to trust and it sounds it sounds silly, but it's it's you know totally a a worry especially like for me before I did a lot of emotion work and really understood emotions, you can get scared that this is never going to go away, right? You go into anger, anger is never going to stop. You go into shame, shame is never going to stop. You go, you know, and so it's a certain amount of just trust in yourself that you can handle just this letting go and feeling your emotions. And you can handle looking at what those thoughts are and seeing what those thoughts are. This leads me to some questions I have about your experience with MS, because I feel like from my perception, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's, it adds another layer of complexity, just like anything where you're having chronic symptoms. And also, as you mentioned, like the kind of what ifs, because first, I mean, I'm curious in your personal journey also, because if I didn't know that you had MS, I don't think I would have suspected it because um, I've known at least one person with MS and then Parkinson's, which is similar in some ways to MS, has been something that a few of my family members have had. And and also recently in the news, we've seen uh, Selma Blair, an actress, talk about her MS a lot, which I thought was really important for awareness because it still seems rare, but maybe it's not as rare as we or I think it is because of people like yourself who don't exert the symptoms that we might associate it with it. Like for me, both Parkinson's and MS, I associate with a body that's shaking a lot, right? Or someone needing to walk with a cane to stabilize themselves. I'm not sure because you're sitting down if, if you have that, but I'm just curious about what that experience has been like for you. And especially given that some of them can be progressive, you know, right now, one of my uncles has it and it, I've been watching for years it progressed through his life and how he has tried a lot of different things and just gone on with his life as best that he can, given that without, to your point from earlier, fully knowing what's going to happen and when. I also found out just now while looking this up uh, in mid-August 2021, Selma Blair reported that she's in remission, which I didn't really know that you could be in MS. So I would just love to hear you speak more about that because that definitely ties into a lot of the things that you're sharing today in your emotional journey. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, on that same, on that same vein, I just saw, I mean, I think like three days ago, Christina Applegate just said that she was diagnosed, which I thought was really, and it was a very quick, like, I'm diagnosed, please you know, respect me and let me process. But it, you know, it is, I can't, you know, I wish I knew the actual numbers. I don't have those at my fingertips. It's not super rare, I guess. And it, you know, there's different, I guess to start from kind of the beginning, 
there are different forms of MS, which is why, for instance, like Selma Blair was saying, I'm in remission because you can have what's called relapsing remitting MS, which is what I have. And it means that you will have a exacerbation of whatever, you know, there's MS is when your immune system is so just, you know, crazy. (laughs) It's like your immune system, my immune system, like in just on its own is super high and it's so high that it's attacking me. And it's what the MS attacks is the central nervous system which is a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of different things that can happen. There's a lot of different, you know, so there's, you know, some people have symptoms that another person will never have. It's very unique to the individual that has it. So there's relapsing remitting where you'll have an exacerbation typically for like a month or so, but then it might go away a little bit, which is one of, I think the drawbacks of it, because a lot of times when you have relapsing remitting, it takes a long time to get diagnosed. Because you could have something and you're like, what is that? That's kind of weird. I don't know what's going on. Like for me, I had like tingling, like it felt like, uh, you know, pins and needles, like in your leg, felt like extreme pins and needles. I was like, this is weird. And I went to the doctor, doctor totally misdiagnosed. (laughs) He was like, well, you're overweight. It's probably something in, you know, your disc in your back and whatever. And I'm like, okay. And then it went away. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm all right. And it's, you know, quiet for a little bit and then it comes back and as something else. And for me, it came back in my eye. And so I, you know, I basically went blind in one eye and that's when they caught it. That's when a lot of people get diagnosed is when it's something like that. But with that, yeah, it you can go back into remission with treatment, with, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of things that you can do. There are also progressive forms of MS to where there is no remission. And it's just kind of slowly marching towards more and more exacerbations or heavier exacerbations and things like that. So there are two different forms of MS. And you can, but you don't, it's not necessarily a given that you can transfer at some point from relapsing remitting to a progressive form. Some people do, some people don't. They don't really, there's still so much that they don't really know. But along those same lines, you know, to your point about how it's like some people you don't even know, you look at me like, no, I don't walk with the, I mean, I run, I hike every day, but you know, it's, there's a part of it that is like an invisible disease to where, you know, no, you know, the, the classic symptoms and what everybody thinks about it is I need a cane. I'm in a wheelchair. You know, that certainly was what I was so afraid of because that's what was, you know, told to me 20 years ago, but that's not necessarily going to happen. But again, it's like, you don't know if somebody's looking at you with both eyes, right? You don't know if I can see you with both my eyes or not. I can, but there are certainly times when I couldn't have. And so that's kind of, you know, along the lines of like what can happen, what different what different things can be affected by MS. You can absolutely see someone and you don't see the pain. You don't see chronic pain. You would never notice that I had pins and needles or if, you know, part of my skin was numb. There's a whole lot of you know, symptoms like that that you just would never see. And what's that like to go through life with something that's perceived as an invisible illness? Does it, does it cause you to feel 
resentful, angry, misunderstood? And how do you move through those emotions if and when you do experience them? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question because it's definitely something that I had to deal with. I had to go through because it's not, you know, when, when you have something like this and I don't, I speak from the experience of MS, but I'm sure it is not only MS, you know, I'm sure if there's, you know, other diagnoses are the same thing, you know, something that was surprising to me was I kind of expected people to say things that weren't really sensitive or just, you know, whatever. I expected that honestly from doctors. I expected that from people who don't know, but I didn't expect it from like within the MS community, but I certainly got it from there too because there are so many different types of ways that MS presents itself. And there are some people that are, you know, far more progressed. There are people like me that you can't even tell, but it's like, you don't know what's going on with me. And if I don't talk about it all the time, you know, which I don't, it's not that, it's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just, it's just not part of, you know what I mean? It's not part of my just everyday thing. You know, it's, it can be really interesting. And so I would get comments not only from, you know, when I saw people, if you're just talking about Thanksgiving, like if I saw like family or people who haven't seen me for a long time and they would say, oh my gosh, you look so good. And I'm like, "Mm, I know what that means. They're basically saying like, oh my gosh, how are you? You're not in a wheelchair. That's great. (laughs) Right. And I had to kind of reconcile that because I would look at that and I'd be like, man, you know, that's just such a, I don't know. It was, it was such a kind of a, patronizing, pitying, you know, kind of, kind of thing. So I did have to kind of reconcile that, but then I also had to reconcile, you know, I I write about this on my blog. This happened a while ago, but I was doing, I did a lot of workshops and things for the MS society. And I remember at the end, I was kind of, you know, getting my things. It was after the workshop and people were, you know, kind of trickling out and saying like, you know, Hey, thank you. And this one woman walked up and she goes, are you in any pain? And I looked at her and I was like, no, not. And she looked at me and she goes, well, you will be. And then she like bolted, right? It was like a (laughs) drive-by. And I remember thinking, I mean, I cannot imagine because I do not have a good poker face. (laughs) So I cannot imagine what I looked like in that moment. But then all of a sudden I was like, holy cow. You know, at that point, maybe I'd had it for like five years or so. And this woman had had it for a very long time. And so then all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, is that where I'm going? Is this, you know, am I going to gradually have more pain and, you know, go into this chronic pain territory where I'm going to need pain? But, you know, like, you know, it, it was just, so yeah, comments from other people. I really, I, I wouldn't know that it was touching a nerve until they were said. And then I was like, whoa, what was that? And, and, you know, I would spiral based on, you know, where I was in my diagnosis and where I was in kind of my journey. And then I, you know, I would kind of use it as an invitation to be like, okay, what is this? What has this kicked off at me? Why am I so afraid or what, you know, why am I feeling this way towards this person? Because, you know, the other people, what they're saying has nothing to do with me. Even the, family that I haven't said seen in forever, you know, the Southern family that are, Oh, you look good. (laughs) I'm like, that's based on their own thoughts and fears and emotions. And, you know, 
probably a certain amount of like, I'm glad I don't have what you have kind of a thing. And so, you know, I had to, I had to really, you know, again, take an honest look and really look at it and be like, look, okay, let's separate things out. Number one, they're saying what they're saying because of them. They're not saying it based on me because they don't know me. Right. Especially these people who like really don't know me. And then I have to say, okay, but what part of that am I believing? Because it is touching a nerve in me because these do really affect me. So what is it inside of me that this is, this is touching. And so, you know, and it's through kind of a series of that, that you start to really reconcile things because so much of it is, oh my gosh, am I, you know, are things going to go off the rail? at some point, does this other person know something that I don't know? Right. Like I, you know, I, I love it. I mean, especially since I've spent, you know, in the first years of my coaching, I worked a lot with people who were newly diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or other, other conditions. And so I would hear a lot of stories about either people's own, you know, stories with their own diagnosis or, you know, somebody else would meet me and find out I had MS and be like, Oh my gosh, my aunt died of MS. (laughs) you know? And so it's like, I certainly, you know, invited people to share their stories, but it was just this constant invitation. Really. I looked at it to look at like, what is this touching within, in me? Because, you know, where I, where I eventually got to is, and, you know, part of it was, was immersing myself in working with people that have MS is to the point where I kind of took myself out of their story. And so I very clearly, I was like, you know what? That's not awesome to say like, oh my gosh, you have this. I know someone who died of that <laughs> Like in any situation. <laughs> it's just not a great thing to say, but I had to get to the point where I didn't take that on and I just didn't absorb it. And so I could hear them. I could listen to their stories and I could hear their pain and their confusion and their, you know, genuine wanting to learn. And I would, you know, I wouldn't make it about me which was a really freeing place to be. Yeah, I imagine. And it's it's so wonderful that that you had the tools to get to that point because it is it's really tough. And I think sometimes that's that's a way of people trying to connect. I mean, this is something that I've I've had to examine when I get triggered or hurt by something that someone says. Like I feel like deep down a lot of people are just trying to connect and relate to one another, but like they don't always have the grace to do it. You know, like if my mom says something hurtful to me, like I know deep down she loves me and she means the best and she's saying it in a way that she doesn't realize triggers me. And I have to, to your point, I have to do the work and examine like, why is this bothering me? And what you said also reminded me of something Jason said at the beginning when he was talking about how people perceive him and, and, I feel like mental health is an invisible illness too. If you're struggling with depression or anxiety, I mean, people say this to me too when I express how I struggle with anxiety or I struggle in general. It's common for people to say, oh, well, you have everything together. You're so organized. And they'll list out all of these things about me that contradicts what I'm expressing about experiencing internally. And in a way, that can be really frustrating And you hear people also do these comparisons, like, and it's like kind of a classic thing that I'm learning not to do. But when you express yourself to somebody and then they come back, oh yeah, me too. And then they get into their story and it almost becomes like a one-up thing. Or they're so busy telling their own story 
that they don't even give you the space to finish telling yours. And it's not a, a collaborative conversation. It's like each person taking turns sharing or comparing or, you know, oh, you don't have it as bad as so-and-so or, you know, just these insensitive things. And I think this is important to talk about because it's a great reminder to just really like step back and examine what our agenda is in conversations and how it might be perceived and how maybe asking more questions of people before making statements could be helpful and just dropping more assumptions about how someone's feeling based on how they look and how they're showing up and recognizing that many people are walking around with some sort of mask that covers up how they are feeling or who they really are because they feel like they have to do that socially. And and Jason, I'm curious how much this is resonating with you, especially given what you were expressing at the beginning. I mean, I definitely have a similar version, Andrea, to what you expressed of, of, being a live speaker and with me talking about my struggles with clinical depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety, a lot of the things that I've been dealing with and researching and all of the the different modalities and life experiments that I've used in, you know, nearly 8 years of, you know, dealing with this mental health condition and it is interesting, you know, at conferences, trade shows, wherever I'm speaking about this, I will have a lot of people come up wanting to kind of the same thing, like share their story, but do it in a way where they're they're trying to, I don't know. I often think about this. It's like, do they want my empathy? Do they want to connect with me on a deeper level? Are they trying to say like, I don't have it that bad to to what you said earlier, Whitney? It, It is an interesting thing when you share vulnerably your struggles with the world, how people respond and react to what you're sharing. It really, it, It's really fascinating. The other thing too that I've had to sit with is, and this is a bit uh, a tangential here, but wanting to support people in a responsible way and not overreaching my abilities. Because I'll get emails sometimes or direct messages from people saying, my nephew's 21 years old. He just tried to commit suicide what kind of supplements would you recommend? And I'm like, I don't think that this needs to be a conversation about supplements if your 21-year-old nephew has just tried to take his own life. I mean, I'll get messages like that sometimes, and I have to be very delicate with how to connect with this human being that is very scared, that's very confused, that wants to help themselves or their loved ones. But sometimes I have to tell them, like, I'm not the resource for this. There's someone who can I can recommend who's a psychotherapist, someone who is a brain doctor. I have to toe the line sometimes in these conversations of, I don't know, not not overreaching my abilities because some of these can people can be in dire situations and they're they're terribly afraid of what to do. So for me, I still have to work on setting proper boundaries with people and also realizing that if I tell people I'm suicidal and depressed and that may shatter the like you said, Andrea, the public image of who is Jason Robel. I'm a angry, negative, depressed person sometimes. I mean, Whitney knows this. There are times when I'm not this happy-go-lucky guy, but the internet thinks I'm this happy-go-lucky guy. But, you know, sorry, fuck it. Like, I'm multitudes. You know, I have dimensions of my personality, and I think I'm now in my mid-40s just becoming more comfortable with saying, yeah, I'm a depressed, angry person sometimes, and that's okay. I don't have to be like, I'm the happy guy who's going to cheer everyone up all the time. Yay, guys. Like, no, even the happy guy gets down on himself a lot. 
Yeah. I mean, I, my gosh, so much that you said in there is, is amazing. I think number one, coming to that realization, you said, look, look, I'm in my forties. I'm not happy all the time, even though this is what people perceive me as it's number one, it's, it's acceptance. It's accepting, you know, like when we talk about self-acceptance, it's accepting all of you, not just like the pretty bits, not just the bits that you feel like you need to fix, but accepting it as it is right here, right now today, which might be that, you know what? Yeah. Sometimes I get really anxious. Sometimes I get really angry. Sometimes I feel really shamed and loving that part of you as well, totally accepting that part of you. And that's, you know, that's one of the first steps to moving between totally being enmeshed in it and believing it and not seeing it any other way and having judgments about it. And that's when we're in that fight or flight mode, right? And so we don't really have clarity about it. And we have this kind of all or nothing thinking. When you start to realize this is a part of me, this is something that's happening now. I'm not saying it's going to happen again. I'm not saying you're not doing anything about it, but you know, this is how I am right here and right now. Then you're moving into that observer mode where it's like, okay, look, sometimes this is going to be an emotion that I have. Sometimes I'm going to feel this way. Sometimes I'm going to have these thoughts. And that's when you start to move. And it's almost like a separation that I think is necessary before, you know, really, like we talked earlier, it's kind of a separation that's necessary to go into like the tantrum or to really have that fuller lease or really move into that observer mode. It's knowing this is not something that is 100% true. This is a thought that I am thinking. And that is kind of that slow walk away from, you know, those parts of you really feeling like they're consuming you sometimes, because I know sometimes it feels like that's the only thing that's, that's going on. in your brain. And, and it can get very frustrating when other people are like, no, that's not who you are. And you're like, yeah, but it kind of is right. Because we have these parts of, I mean, we're kind of 50, 50 with positive and negative emotions. Like it's, we have all emotions and, and honestly, I call them positive and negative because I know that's, you know, that's how people refer to them and that's how I refer to them, but they're all just emotions, right? They're not necessarily positive or negative. They're all just emotions run through our body, right? They're all just these vibrations that are running through our body. And our brain is what connects a negative or positive thought to them. So I think it's, you know, and again, it kind of goes into other people's view of us kind of has nothing to do with us at all. Like, have you ever had someone tell you like their impression of you and it like completely floors you? Cause you're like, what? <laughs> Like, where'd you even get that? <laughs> you know, it's it's almost like they're describing a completely different person, but they swear that's how you are because in their mind it is because how they interpret you, what they hear from you, what they see from you, the vibe that they're picking up from you is a hundred percent run by who they are and what they think and what they believe, right? It's all about that confirmation bias, but we look for stuff that confirms what we're believing, i.e. we're looking for stuff that kind of confirms how we're feeling inside. And so, you know, going back to that, that woman, I'm sure she was in a really bad place. I am sure that she was hurting and, you know, both emotionally and physically. And, you know, my heart hundred percent goes out to her, especially in that moment, because I, you know, I haven't talked to her since, but she was reflecting to me when she was saying, oh, you will, you will feel pain. 
that was 100% based on her experience and what she's going. And she was just reflecting that on me. So, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting that you were talking about was how people connect with each other. And sometimes it kind of feels like they're trying to one-up each other on like, oh yeah, you got that. Let me tell you about my pain or let me tell you about my situation. (laughs) You know, they're like these toppers. What I've always found kind of interesting is when you, and I'm sure, you know, through your work, you hear the difference too. There's a nuance to how people say things. Even if you've never heard them before, you've never met them before, and they're coming up to you after, after a talk, after, you know, a speech or whatever, you can tell if somebody is truly authentically connecting with you and maybe even saying something for the first time because something you have said has sparked this in them or made them understand this part of themselves. And they really just want to share with you because it's it might be a new revelation or it might be something that they've been internally thinking about. And now they're just kind of voicing and they see you as a safe space. You can feel that versus someone saying something about how horrible something is and they are saying it like, in the same kind of energy of, I need to go to the store and buy some lettuce, <laughs> right? It's that same, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of that same thing. And they, no matter what it is, they can say something that's that's truly, you know, pulls at your heartstrings and you think, oh my gosh, but you've realized that this is probably the 100th time they've said it. This is pr- I'm probably the, you know, 50th person that they've said this to. And I think that's when you can you can tell right to that question of like, how do I know if they are truly trying to connect with me, even though they're saying, Hey, this is also my experience versus are they just talking because they want your attention? They want your empathy. And chances are they think you can give them something to make them feel better, make them feel right. Important, make them feel whatever way that they want to feel. I just feel like, especially, you know, I, I'm the same way in that and really kind of that empathic kind of feeling of other people's energy and how they, not just what they say, but how they deliver and the energy around it. You can tell there's a, there's a difference there for sure. Yeah. This is a challenge I find in being a sensitive, empathic person. You know, you talked Andrea about, about you working on not taking on other people's energy. Right. And I feel like in general, if we blow this out to what is happening in the world right now, I still am trying my best. And I'm curious if you have any resources for myself, for Whitney, for any of the other sensitive souls listening to this podcast. We we know I'm actually thinking of several people I know are listening to this who are very loving, compassionate, sensitive people. Whether it's working with a client, someone we know personally in our lives, or just observing the world right now. The wildfires, the climate change, the sheer amount of people, animals, plant life that is perishing, things that are happening in international affairs, of of course, the coronavirus pandemic that changed the world. There are so many things, either on a personal level or a massive global level, that I feel ripped apart by emotionally all of the time. And some days I feel, I don't know if resilience is the right word, I I feel like I'm able to handle those kind of emotions better certain days. But if I'm honest about it, I still struggle on a near daily basis with managing the amount of despair and pain and suffering I see in others and taking that on. Andrea, how have you done that for yourself? What's that process been like as an empathic, sensitive person? 
And what do you recommend for other sensitive souls on their journey if they're feeling overwhelmed by all of this, like I am? Yeah, I mean, so, so well put. I mean, I, every single thing that you just said, I was, you know, nodding like, yes, yes. And I want to preface this by saying, I do not have this all figured out. <laughs> I have not, I have not arrived. <laughs> there is no arriving. I don't think, I think it's just, you know, you try something and you see if it works and either it does or it doesn't. And then you try something else and, you know, you just kind of, it's just a series of, I don't know, just, just trying things out, right. Just experimenting and seeing, cause there's a lot of different things that you can use. I'll start with kind of what I do and what I found works for me is number one, knowing when I need a temper tantrum, because that quite often is when it just builds and builds and builds. And it's like, ah, it's like, I gotta, I gotta release the dam. And that just, that just does it. But also, you know, knowing, you know, you talk about resilience. One of the things, you know, resilience has a lot, there's a lot that goes into resilience, I guess I should say, one of which is like willpower, right? A lot of times we forget about willpower, but you know, it's, it's not, Willpower is not, should not be used for things like, I don't want to eat ice cream. I don't want to eat that cake. I want to be good in my diet, right? Like people think of willpower for that. That to me, that is not the best use of willpower because willpower is like this muscle and you kind of use it up every single day and things like sleep, restorative sleep, good sleep, can, you know, fill that tank back up for the next day of using willpower. And so as we either go throughout the day and we hear more and more, it's like, we kind of sometimes feel like, you know, towards the end of the day and even like in the middle of the night is kind of when we're at this breaking point of like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. It's because that willpower has, you know, ticked down because you use it for a lot of different things, you know, during the day. And if you're not getting good sleep, it's not really going to be filling back up. So you're not really working with that full tank of willpower on a, on a daily basis. So sometimes it's just that your willpower has just taken such a hit. It Other things are going to affect you in a bigger way. And when you are already keyed into a lot of this energy, not just you know the news, but the energy of the news, right? You, y'all know what I mean. And it just can affect you that much more. So one thing I find is to temper tantrums to make sure I am taking care of myself as much as I can. You know, like I'm not going to, I'm someone, you know, God bless them, you know, the biohackers and the people who do like every tiny little nutrient, you know, like God bless them. It's just not, you know, for me, I'm like, I just need to make sure I'm eating well. (laughs) I need to make sure I'm not eating processed foods. I'm drinking my kombucha and I'm trying to sleep a lot. (laughs) Like that's kind of where I am, but just make sure you do that as much as you can, because your body needs to heal as much as it can and help you with that resilience, right? Resilience is not just in the mind, it's in your body as well. Things that have helped me that I know, you know, People have thoughts about it, but things like meditation have really helped. Anything to kind of clear that, you know, my brain, anything to, you know, just kind of like, I feel like my table gets so full with different stuff. Sometimes you just want to like do a clear sweep and get to that point where you're, you know, I find that connecting with myself And again, you know, I kind of talked about it before. It's like not really thinking about other people, not thinking about other things, not thinking about even like thinking about the future because 
to me, when you're thinking about what's happening in the future, even if it's about what's happening to you in the future, you're still deflecting away from yourself right here. So really just connecting with yourself in that moment and feeling yourself as that observer, just letting yourself observe like, okay, you know what? I'm feeling like shit right now. I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. I'm feeling, I don't know about you for me. And I don't know what the, maybe you have a good adjective for it, but I feel this where it's like, I'm super just tired, but I'm not tired. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I'm just going to go to bed, but I'm so physically tired and just watching like, okay, this is how I'm feeling. And my brain is a tornado right now. And just watching it and and really just connecting with myself. And in doing that, I also connect with my trust. So much of it is that self-trust that you have your own back. And for me, connecting back with that and you know, when it comes to the things of like, I don't know what's happening with this world. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there was that super scary report that was like, we've known since the seventies that everything's going to end in like 2030 or whatever. Right. Did y'all read that? It was like the, yeah, it was like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) like what the hell? I had to really connect back and be like, you know what, no matter what happens, I know this is who I am. This is what I can handle. I know I will look after myself and not ask any more of myself right? I'm not asking for myself to be Wonder Woman. I'm not asking for anything other than I will take care of me. I can, you know, trust myself to make the best decisions. And that helps both for kind of those spiraling thoughts, right? It's, you know, you said before, it almost gives me permission to just kind of let that go because I, I realize in that moment that I'm giving myself kind of this impossible task and that's part of it. And it also helps to clear that energy right? Because even though we have these thoughts that we're taking on or these worries about what's going to happen in the future, or what's going on with all the other people and animals and our beautiful planet, right? Even with all of those worries, there's still just that energy that we take on. And I find when I kind of bring it back, I call it like bring it back home. That's kind of how I think about it. So, you know, let's just bring it back home. It's, it's a breath, it's a release. It's, you know, I'm observing like, oh, look, there's that energy. I'm feeling this angst. I'm feeling this fear. Is it mine? Is it what I anticipate someone is feeling over in Afghanistan? Am I anticipating it's the pain that's felt by animals or is this something that I could truly own? Right. And in that moment, it's almost like breathing through it. So that is what has worked for me. I'm not saying that's what's going to work for other people, but yeah, there's a lot of different, different things, but things like meditation, becoming that observer. I mean, I started coaching, not because I wanted to become a coach, but because I wanted help with this stuff. And I went to, you know, my, my first teacher was Martha Beck. I don't know if you know her, but she's very much into this energy. You know, she was exactly what I needed. And that's where I learned a lot of these tools. And then by that, I was like, oh my gosh, this helped me so much. I have to teach this. But those are just kind of the things that have helped me. I know that, you know, various things help other people. Exercise is great. I know it sounds so rudimentary, but just moving your body can really move that energy, right? It's about not getting stuck. Like you want to move your body through stretching or working out however you love to work out, whatever that looks like, dancing, whatever it is, but moving your body is one breathing, paying attention to your breath. Sometimes we hold our breath without realizing it, just sitting there, just doing our work. 
right? So really working on that. It can be working on through coaching or therapy or whatever, you know, modality you need. It's, it's working on that. You can work with, you know, certainly Reiki helps. I have a, a very good friend who does emotional release, which I don't know what it is. I can't, I, that's all I can tell you about it. I just know that when she does it, I am super tired for the rest of the day. So I know it's something. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> but there's a lot of different people and there's a lot of different healers that you can seek out. Just know that it's not one size fits all. It's a matter of trying and seeing if it works for you. And if it doesn't, fine, move on and, and figure something else out. Yeah, that's really the thing that we try and emphasize here, Andrea, with our teachings in the podcast is relentless curiosity and experimentation. There's been so many practitioners, to your point, therapists, coaches, healers that I'll go to, one of our friends or colleagues will go to, and they'll say, I had this tremendous experience and perhaps I'll try it and not have the same experience because there's so many variables in our psyche, our life story, our belief systems, you know, our limiting beliefs. I mean, we're such complex beings that I think this is one of the big keys here is, is when we're facing the opportunity to address something within ourselves, understand it, heal it, accept it, acknowledge it. I mean, there's so many layers to this that I was joking with Whitney the other day. I, I might have been on the podcast or it might have been in conversation. Sometimes I forget if we actually have like... I do. We've done so many episodes at this point. This is a little bit of a tangent that I forget whether or not it was just a personal conversation with Whitney or whether we actually addressed it on the podcast. So that being said, uh, the the other day I was talking about, oh God, and I just lost it. Maybe it was about people having different experiences than one another. That's where you were going. And I was thinking about when I was raving about this body worker that I went to see who was just like so transformative. And I immediately texted Jason and I was like, you've got to try this woman. She's so amazing. But it's also an ongoing conversation we have about how some people online feel that temptation to say like, if something works for them, like that's the way and it's going to work for everyone. Is that what you're going to touch on, Jason? Uh, it was something similar, but it was like... It was, yeah, it was kind of in that vein of where people are like, oh, you got to go see this speaker, or, you got to buy this book, or, or this is the thing that's going to, how do I say this? It's like, this is the thing that is going to be the key that unlocks the whole thing for you. I feel like in marketing and putting products out and, and putting out creative things, I'm very mindful of trying never to phrase anything that I offer with like, this is going to fix you, or this is the thing that's going to heal you. I think someone told me years ago that, and I'm going to butcher this, and I don't, it was something like the, the responsibility or the mission of a healer or a guru is not to heal you or fix you, but to show you the places within yourself that you need to love and you need to address and you need to understand more. Like they're not going to do it for you. And I feel like in life, there's a lot in our culture, especially Western culture, where we just like, just fix it for me. Just just make it go away. This is uncomfortable. It's Just make it go away. Give me the pill. Give me the course. Give me the book. Give me the thing. But I think that that's kind of dangerous in a way, right? Because we're constantly evolving beings. We're constantly shedding. We're constantly, I mean, every seven years on a biological level, we're completely different on a cellular level. I mean, I think about that all the time of... I'll sit and go, what was I doing seven years ago? Wow, I feel like a different human being. Seven years ago, I felt like a different person. It's like, oh, well, 
biologically, you were a different person, Jason. So with that, Andrea, I want to just dig so much deeper into all of the resources you have to share. You have this wonderful podcast. You have books. You have these great blog posts. Your website is just so full of wonderful, useful content. And I want to direct everyone there. If, if you're digging Andrea as much as we are, y'all, we will have all of her resources, her website, which is andreahansoncoaching.com. It's H-A-N-S-O-N, andreahansoncoaching.com. Again, her podcast, her books, if you want to coach one-on-one with her and understand and give yourself permission to have more tantrums, I may be pinging you after this through email, Andrea, just to get a little more insight on my tantrums. But everything you shared today is just coming from such a place of love and allowing. And I feel that. I know our listeners have felt that. And your presence is just one of just deep love and acceptance. I and mean, we, we can feel that even though we're in this digital screen and we're not actually in the room with you. I can only imagine what it would be like in the room with you. Hopefully, we get that chance someday. But we want to just celebrate you, acknowledge you, and thank you for being a wonderful guest and sharing so many resources with us today. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Tears. Thank you so much for saying that. It, yeah, it's, you know, I was sharing earlier, I love, I love the vibe of this podcast. I love that it invites this just radical acceptance of ourselves because we are, you know, we're messy, nuanced beings in a world that doesn't necessarily accept messy, nuanced beings, which is really kind of fascinating and maybe meta if you think about it, because it's, you know, we're surrounded by people who aren't, who aren't comfortable with that part of themselves. And so, you know, they're reflecting to us that they're not really comfortable with us saying the same thing. And, so I just love, I love having a place where, you know, I can share about just having that acceptance of yourself and that love of yourself. And, you know, something we've talked about is that trust. I think so much of what we are doing or want to do or, you know, wish to do, you know, the entry part is, or the entry point rather is how we talk to ourselves, how we connect with ourselves is to me, that's kind of the door because if we're not accepting, if we're judging, if we're anything, it's going to affect everything from setting boundaries to how we're really accepting of ourselves. And so I love that, you know, you start this podcast off with acceptance and just, you know, showing all, all the bits of ourselves, including the ugly ones and accepting it and knowing that it's okay. And again, you're right. It's something that I always say as a coach is that there's nothing wrong with you. You might want to change. You might want to do something different. You might have a goal. You might want to get, you know, better health, but the starting point is never that you need to fix yourself. The starting point is never that there's something wrong, something that you have to change because you're afraid of where it's going to go. If you don't, the starting point is always loving yourself and accepting yourself and treating yourself with just the utmost kindness and gentleness. I think that's that's where everything starts. Yeah, it's such beautiful, sagacious advice, really. And if you, dear listener, dear watcher, however you're consuming this podcast, want to go deeper into Andrea's beautiful insights, her wisdom, and work with her and consume her 
absolutely uplifting content. Again, we will have all of her links in our show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You'll have a full transcript of this entire episode for you to enjoy. Again, links to Andrea's website, her coaching, her podcast, her books, all things Andrea Hansen. We will have there if you want to dive in deeper to her world. And again, Andrea, it's been just a godsend and a pleasure to have you here today. And thanks for sharing your your work, your process in some beautiful chunks of your life story and in your process with us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you guys as well. I've really enjoyed this. This has been, I love it when I get to sit down with like-minded <laughs> people. It's, it's, it's so nice. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.